The reason that our country is in the mess that it is in today is not because of the Republicans, it's not because of the Democrats. Let me tell you this, it's because of lame Christians. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a fascinating subject to cover today, but first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms with all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Check us out on our fan page on Facebook when you type in the search bar the at symbol Mighty Fortress 313. Of course, if you're listening through our YouTube page, go ahead and hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. Helps the channel grow and gets the word out. You can also take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com. There we have the media hosted and you can find written articles with all sorts of different subjects and videos and even a link to our merch store to help support the work. And on that note, if you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website and the established PayPal link. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I would like to talk about a very sensitive subject to many including christians and that is the subject of psychology i'm not talking about the general use of the word in relation to how a person thinks or acts but about the field itself it can be a very sensitive topic to discuss because psychology deals with our emotions primarily And if you've been brainwashed into a certain way of thinking about this, then it's very hard to get someone to think with reason rather than emotions. I properly titled this podcast, Psychology's War Against God, because I'm going to demonstrate that the teachings of psychology and God are diametrically opposed one to another. Why is this so important to talk about? Society, and even Christians, have been duped into thinking that psychology is a real scientific practice. What is worse is that there are so many churches all around America that are bringing in Christian psychologists to deal with their problems, rather than to look to the Word of God for answers. This is going to be a multi-series podcast, and I'm going to take time to explain and thoroughly document why no Christian should take psychology seriously, 
and instead they should turn to the Word of God. In this first part of the series, I want to lay the foundation starting with why, even according to secular science, that psychology is not a legitimate scientific practice. We will look at different types of therapies and analyze them according to secular science. I mean, what do I mean by secular? Is that no religion involved? It's just secular people talking and analyzing the branch itself. And this is without addressing scripture at this point. This is going to be very important to start with because too many Christians believe that this is actually a legit science and should not be questioned. Once we've laid that foundation, then we will examine psychology not just as a pseudoscience, but also being a very religious and ripe philosophy for the spirituality message being propagated today. Then we will compare both psychology and the Word of God and how they offer very opposite solutions to people's problems. We will zero in on two or three particular psychological philosophies like, say, self-esteem and victimization. And we're going to do that after we laid our foundation. The outcome and stories associated with these will literally blow your mind. With that introduction, let's get right into this. Psychology and its practitioners, both psychologists and psychiatrists, are in a very twisted spot in our society. Now, psychiatrists are basically psychologists with medical degrees, and they can issue out various types of drugs and narcotics. Why are they in such a twisted spot in society? Because on the one hand, the scientific world questions their credibility for being a legitimate science. And on the other hand, the pen stroke of a psychologist can take someone's kids away, label them mentally ill, or possibly even have them incarcerated in a mental institution. A psychologist can have an extraordinary amount of power in court proceedings despite its scientifically sketchy record. We could confidently say that most people who get into psychology have the full intention of actually helping people. This is much the intention of people who want to become, say, medical doctors or further to become surgeons or some other specialty practice. Even though both types of study involve the human body, then why is it argued that these aren't both in the scientific field? Why is psychology not considered a science? by the mainstream. Let's take two examples briefly with psychology and neurology. The definition of psychology is the study of mind and behavior, an active study involved in understanding mental processes, brain functions, and behavior." End quote. The definition of neurology is a branch of medicine dealing with disorders of the nervous system. Neurology deals with the diagnosis and treatment of all categories of conditions and disease involving the brain, the spinal cord, and the peripheral nerves." End quote. The main difference between these two, if you've noticed, is the word behavior, which neurology does not do. If you would have asked me 15 years ago if there was much of a difference, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But let me give you a short anecdote to open this up. Once upon a time, back in 2006 and 2007, 
I was dealing with a particular issue because of a sport that I had played. It caused concussions. Now, at this time, I didn't know anything about the repercussions of uh, what would happen when I sustained a concussion. Well, when I was in the Marine Corps, I noticed that after certain events had transpired in this particular sport, that I was starting to have memory failure, particularly in the short term. I would have headaches and these types of things that would take place. Now, I first thought that it was just me. I'm just being forgetful. But then I read about another very similar athlete who pulled out of a major tournament for very similar symptoms that I had been going through. And then I thought to myself, I need to go see a neurologist. Meanwhile, of course, I'm in the Marine Corps at this time. I go see the neurologist. I go through all sorts of testing on the computer to test my short-term and long-term. That's how I know it's really narrowed it down to my short-term memory. And I had already started to learn how to get around the memory failure by developing little tricks about how I think about things and remember things. But I tried to set that aside and go through the test honestly and as best as I could. I had an MRI done on my brain. And thankfully, there was no outside visible brain trauma. The Marine Corps also then decided to send me to a psychologist. I kind of liked my neurologist, but I went to go see this psychologist. And this lady I sat in front of began to tell me how, quote, well, it's a debate within the community between psychologists and neurologists, a weather you know, concussions can actually affect a person's brain and give them uh, memory problems and those types of things. And I looked at her and I said, so you're saying that concussions or head trauma doesn't potentially affect the memory? And she said, yes. And I said, do you realize that XYZ, I labeled the sport of what we did. And I said, you're telling me that doesn't affect the memory? And she's held to it. And I said, this lady's crazy. She's a psychologist. How much is she getting paid? Well, anyways, I went back to the neurologist. And at first I was kind of discouraged because I was thinking, well, sheesh, man, maybe it really is me. I just need to have more discipline and not forget things. Well, I went back to the neurologist and the neuro I told her what happened. And she said, she said, what? <laughs> I'll never forget this older lady, real sweet, real nice, and real good at what she did. And I'll never forget that expression because I was like, oh, wait, are you telling me that she doesn't know what she's talking about? Well, isn't that something? Dr. So-and-so I went to go see, right? Isn't that interesting? Now, about this time, the world of concussions and its effect on the brain will completely open up because, believe it or not, there was a war going on between psychology and neurology at this time because the NFL and the football players that try to sue the NFL for uh, brain-related injuries, there was a big legal battle taking place and a lot of money was on the line. They actually made a movie, I think a couple years ago, I think it was with Will Smith, uh, telling this particular story. But it is funny that you can go and see WebMD uh, to say an article from 2003 that says even mild concussions cause memory loss in high school athletes. Now, you're not going to see this talking about adults necessarily, but it's funny how they correlated 
uh, high school athletes and then relates to football especially says for teenage athletes even my uh, mild concussions can cause memory problems lasting up to a week well isn't that interesting that a psychologist would tell me that that's nonsense and a neurologist who actually studies the brain would give me the correct information now after the lawsuit with the nfl and all the studies that were done now we look back and we can say who would actually say those types of things but believe it or not those conversations were taking place just in the 2000s i am for sure not the ultimate authority on the difference between a psychologist and a neurologist and who's right and wrong but this did cause me to study more on why would a psychologist say such things that just didn't make sense scientifically or even logically i soon began to learn more about this divide between the two uh, professions a verse from the bible comes to mind when the book of romans chapter 1 and verse 22 says professing themselves to be wise they became fools <laughs> end quote but let's move on it seems crazy but even with modern science we still have a hard time understanding this complex organ called the brain now psychologists will play that off and portray the brain just being systematic and you'll need to see them for counseling to fix your problems now i will say from the get-go that if there's something wrong with your brain that a neurologist is a doctor that you need to scientifically speaking go speak to okay but science is conducted when you follow the scientific method when asked this question about his opinion of psychology one scientist broke this definition down very simply he said quote science is a theory incorporating all the known facts and predicting new facts experiments must be conducted on the same subjects repetitively and repeatedly these are the primal conditions of science end quote he then goes on to say quote Literally, none of these conditions can be satisfied with psychology, end quote. If you get 100 psychoanalysts, psychologists, and psychiatrists in a room together to look at a mental problem with a patient, you're going to get close to 100 different solutions, treatments, and therapies. This is because of the subjectivity of the field as a whole of psychology. There are literally no repeatable theories in psychology. We'll address several of these theories later on. But if you were to look at the statements of some of the psychology departments at various universities, you think psychology is one of the top sciences. Here's one statement from a university on the East Coast. Psychological studies are designed very much like studies in other scientific fields. It is through these studies that psychologists contribute to the body of research in their field. Professionals in the field who do psychology understand that psychology is a scientific discipline. End quote. It's like you're saying that it's scientific over and over again to help convince yourself and convince those who read it that it's true, but it's not. Now, this is a profound statement given the animosity of the scientific community as to the credibility of this trade as a science on a different note and tone in a simply psychology article titled quote is psychology a science dr saul mcleod makes the case that while science is classified as an empiricist approach 
maybe it's good that psychology stays outside and gives sort of a new definition to science. What is empiricism? Basically, uh, facts, evidence, things you can prove uh, definitely. Now, he states that full understanding, prediction, and control in psychology is probably unattainable due to the huge complexity of environmental, mental, and biological influences upon the simplest behavior. He then explains that there are scientific limitations in psychology and gives a few examples of this. He says, quote, scientific laws are generalized. I don't even know if I didn't actually even know this was a word generalizable, but psychological explanations are often restricted to specific times and places because psychology studies mostly people. It studies indirectly the effects of social and cultural changes on behavior. Psychology does not go into a social vacuum. Behavior changes over time and over different situations. These factors and individual differences make research findings reliable for a limited time only. End quote. What is he saying? That you're only going to be able to do a test and a study for a small period of time, get the results that you want, and then ultimately they're going to be useless because then the behavior and attitude and emotions are going to change with the, with that same person. A journalist in Scientific American magazine is even more bold to question science itself in his article, Is Psychology a Real Science or Does It Really Matter? <laughs> In this article, he explains that it shouldn't even matter if psychology is a science or not, because why should only empiricists get to determine what is, quote, science-y, end quote. <laughs> as funny as that is, he goes on. He says, quote, now chemical definitions are still admittedly more accurate and quantifiable than definitions of, say, happiness or satisfaction. But the point is not that everything measurable needs to be quantifiable to the sixth decimal point to call itself scientific end quote what is he saying who who is these who are these scientists to say what is scientific or not and who says you have to be able to measure everything <laughs> this is in a scientific american uh, magazine by the way pretty funny and ironic so so far you have to wonder if psychologists are willing to acknowledge the fundamental issues of psychology and are really just pushing more for a religious view of their art. The main issue that psychology deals with is that none of their hypotheses can be replicated. Anyone that writes or says that they can do otherwise is blatantly lying to you. There was one hypothesis that seemed to finally break that barrier in the late 1990s, and it was called Ego Depletion Theory by Roy Baumeister. This was the theory that people would become mentally tired in their ego. Now, this is Freudian, but we'll look at him next episode. And so they're going to become mentally tired in their ego, fighting off temptation, and they'll be more susceptible to errors in the brain thought processing. The study was published with repeatable results, and the psychological world went crazy. Finally, we have a place at the scientific table, they must have thought. There were other psychologists in 2010 that would participate in the same type of study and then supposedly get the same results. Then, the bomb was dropped in 2014 by outside researchers 
when the study was more closely scrutinized. They found that there were all sorts of problems with the studies, and they could not reproduce the same results as the original studies. Using new methods of analysis, the eagle depletion effect utterly disappeared. This exposed the cherry-picking of data utilized in the study, and it shown the bias in reporting. They'll construct experiments that they think will demonstrate their theory, and then guess what? The results do. But if an experiment doesn't show the desired results, psychologists won't publish those findings. This is instead of believing the experiment parameters were wrong and then just creating new tests to get the desired results. Another theory is based on how a person's genetics will produce their temperament. Simply put, my father had an anger problem, so I will too. Well, in a MedlinePlus.gov article titled, Is Temperament Determined by Genetics?, it states scientists estimate 20 to 60% of temperament is determined by genetics. Now that's pretty interesting because that's a pretty big statistical spread to use. Going from 20 to 60%, okay, well, how did you come across those numbers? Well, it goes on because it starts to unravel the previous statement by saying, quote, temperament, however, does not have a clear pattern of inheritance, and there are not specific genes that confer specific temperamental traits, end quote. You just completely unravel the previous statement by saying, well, there's a percentage by which it may affect your temperament, but we don't really know. <laughs> it's insane. The last paragraph of the article goes on to say, quote, environmental factors also play a role in temperament by influencing gene activity. In children raised in an adverse environment, such as one of child abuse and violence, genes that increase the risk of impulsive temperamental characteristics may be turned on. However, a child who grows up in a positive environment, like a safe and loving home, may have a calmer temperament, and in part because a different set of genes was activated. Now notice the slip-in of genes again, even though they can't demonstrate such is actually occurring. This correlates with a major diagnosis of victimization, which we'll deal with next podcast. This isn't about genes more than it is about purely, you know, being about behavior. The example of child abuse and violence correlates with scripture in Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 24 when it says, quote, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul, end quote. What is it saying? If you hang around an angry man, you too will be an angry man or an angry woman. Now, the last example that I'm going to give briefly is about the myth of chemical imbalances. This one, by far, is one of the greatest lies of psychology and has been the foundation of psychiatrists prescribing billions of dollars worth of debilitating drugs each year. I have heard the chemical imbalances comments from pulpits of pastors and churches. I've heard it used by Christians. Uh, to justify their depression or anxiety or whatever else. 
And of course, you can hear this all the time on social media or the actual television media itself. Like I said, this is used for, for everything from anger issues to anxiety to depression. The chemical imbalance theory is said to occur when the brain has either excessive or insufficient chemical messengers called neurotransmitters. According to Healthline.com, Dr. Mark S. Lenner, he's an MD, he states, quote, Scientists in the late 1950s proposed the chemical imbalance theory following the reversal of depressive symptoms with monomine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOs, tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, and serotonin reptate inhibitors, SSRIs, all of which increase the concentration of neurotransmitters. End quote. Psychiatrists have turned this, this chemical imbalance theory into a business worth billions of dollars. Because guess what? There's money in the health industry, apparently, right? If you feel sad or depressed, you may have a chemical imbalance. And guess what? There's just the right drug with you, with terrible side effects, by the way. We'll have it ready for you with a nice prescription and a nice hefty fee. According to that Healthline article, there are no reliable tests to diagnose a chemical imbalance in the brain. Even the main diagnosis in which this chemical imbalance theory is used, which is depression, it goes back to our previous uh, point of the genetic problem. They'll say, well, there's no genetic issues with depression. We can't prove that. So that kind of goes back to our previous point. I'll never forget when studying this subject, I was watching some doctor, I can't remember his name, it was a long time ago, but he asked a simple question. When someone says that you have a chemical imbalance or somebody else has a chemical imbalance, you look at them and say, what chemicals? Now this is pretty funny because you'll start to realize that they just said it, but they have no clue what they're talking about. That includes medical doctors. The main response that would be given from time to time would just be, well, your serotonin levels may be off. Well, we're starting to learn more about serotonin scientifically that it may not operate the way we think it operates, considering that most of the serotonin that's generating the body comes from, I think it's the intestines. So what does that have to do with the brain? And yet we're prescribing drugs that affect the serotonin levels of the brain. Because we think that serotonin starts in the brain. That's something else. Now you got kind of a false science going on there. You're giving people drugs. How many people have you literally messed up from all the drugs you prescribed them? Messing with actual chemicals in their brain and destroying them. That article goes on to say that instead of saying that you have a chemical imbalance, it'd be better to just go through cognitive behavior therapy instead of taking the harsh medications now we're going to deal with that particular type of therapy next podcast but one scientist said that psychology is transitioning to psychiatry and psychiatry is trans transitioning to neuroscience what does he mean he means aspiring psychologists strive to one day get their medical degree and become psychiatrists. 
then realizing their field doesn't actually work and even with all of the drugs that they're prescribing they feel like it's not working because it's not then they move towards what they should have chosen in the very beginning being a neurologist isn't that funny come full circle to neurology we could literally spend hours talking about the failures of psychology just on the secular level but i believe enough has been said to give you ammunition to study on your own we can't always be spoon fed we have to study and know what we believe and why we believe it we need to really think about the impact of psychology upon the local church the bible does warn christians against those who would bring damnable heresies into the church and with this we tend to think that, well, this just applies to those who twist Christianity Christianity itself. Well, the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, quote, But there were false prophets also among you, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction, end quote. Now, this is true in relation to psychology and many of its practitioners, and we're really going to start to see that next podcast. But because of the haze of definitions and categories of science, it, it was hard to initially correlate this with psychology. But I hope that after this podcast, you can now build that bridge and see finally, wow, psychology is not the science that everybody had claimed it to be. The scripture that most identifies uh, how we should begin to look at this subject is actually in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. It says, quote, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. End quote. The scripture warns Christians against false prophets and gives a description of how you can know them. Ultimately, you will know them by their fruit. And this means basically that they uh, what they produce as far as the results of their teaching. Now, we've laid the foundation of the pseudoscience of psychology just from a secular perce uh, perception. Now... When we move into the next podcast, we're going to see the diametrical opposites between God's word and the religion of psychology. We will revisit this verse in the next podcast and we'll examine the rotten and corrupt fruit that this has brought to the church. I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.